0: Welcome to the Daily Bible reading show. Today is Friday. It's the weekend. It's Friday, March the 12th and we will be looking at Exodus chapter 23, John chapter 2, John chapter 2, Job chapter 41, and 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, thank you for joining me. Every year I do this I read four passages from the Bible and hopefully in a year we'll go through the entire Bible. Uh, so I'll begin with a word of Prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this whole week and thank you for this coming weekend. Thank you for sustaining us and showing us your grace again and again and again. We come to you in repentance for the times when we've not appreciated this and we've not been a good witness, uh, whether at school or at work. And we pray, Lord, that you teach us and enable us to reflect fully the grace and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ moving forward. Uh, for this coming weekend we pray for rest we pray for times of reflection and refreshment and especially for sunday we pray that you'll prepare our hearts so that when we come together as your people as your church we'll rejoice in the grace that's revealed to us in the gospel of our lord jesus christ thank you again for his sacrifice and thank you for the cross that procures for us that salvation and that uh, freedom that comes through faith in christ alone we thank you and praise you in jesus name and also yes uh, pray for this coming reading uh, please bless this reading to our hearts and please lord help me with the reflections help me to be faithful please um wipe away from our minds our hearts anything that isn't helpful that isn't encouraging and help me to um, only speak that which is from you that is uplifting and upbuilding i pray this in jesus name amen so on to exodus chapter 23 Uh, hello again if you've just joined us this is the daily bible reading show and i'm reading exodus chapter 23 you shall not spread a false report you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet an enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, Lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right." You shall not oppress a sojourner, you know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I've said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in a year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, or of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor three times in the year shall all your meals appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries." When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods or serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you, and I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them, and their gods, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Uh Uh-huh. So two halves. The first half deals with well three parts, sorry, not not two halves. So three thirds. (laughs) Three parts. Let's look at the first part to do with not showing favoritism, especially in showing in giving judgments, not taking advantage of the system, especially if you are the more privileged person, you're the more wealthy person compared to the other person at the other end of this legal struggle. So in number one, verse one, you shall not spread a false report and you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with many to do evil. So this warning not to lie, not to join with other people to lie, to be a malicious witness, and not to join with, it says here, many to do evil, you know, join in with the crowd. And nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many again as to pervert justice. And here is this realism that many will want to pervert justice, will want to take advantage of the system. You know, you think of um, situations where everyone else is doing it. And so you say, so, okay, all right, okay, I'll do this as well. God says, no, many people will want to do this. Don't side with that. Don't give in to that. And especially if the many have you know, the upper hand, they're the powerful, they're the evil. And verse 3, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So hence, you know, at the, 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 the end of the spectrum is the person who is poor, who's being taken advantage of. So don't be the one to take advantage of that person, especially if you have a hand in this judgment, in this lawsuit, in this legal system. So a warning against impartial, against being partial, especially when everyone else is being showing favoritism trying to take advantage of the situation trying to take advantage of the poor person you don't do this verse four if you meet your enemies ox so someone you don't like someone who doesn't like you so you see his ox and his donkey it's gone astray bring it back to him You know, don't use your hatred of him, his hatred of you, as an excuse not to show love to your enemy. Verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So rescue and help um, the person, this donkey that belongs to the person who hates you. You know, don't, again, show favoritism. Don't uh, use your hatred and even the hatred of someone else against you as a reason not to do the right thing, not to do the loving thing towards the person who hates you. That's very, very challenging, isn't it? Verse 6, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Now he's already said this in verse 3, you shall not be partial, but here he repeats it. You know, don't pervert justice just because the other person is poor, just because you can. Verse 7, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. So here is not just the bribe to make you do wrong, but maybe sometimes that incentive you know that that just kind of like sweetens the deal because what it does is it blinds us if you might start out with that clear sight that right judgment but it blinds you and it subverts the cause of those who are right and here those who are right are equated with those who are innocent and those who are poor and oftentimes it's saying that even with these laws even with God you know being your God in this land where these laws are being enacted there is a t- temptation to subvert the law to side with the wicked, to take advantage of the wicked of the sorry of the poor of the innocent and the righteous and so don't be one of those evildoers verse 7 you shall not oppress a sojourner you know the heart of a sojourner for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And it's amazing. It's amazing that God has to remind you of your humble circumstances, of the time when people took advantage of you so that you don't take advantage of others. Why is that? I wonder. Why is it that people who know how painful it is and how horrible it is to be taken advantage of need to be reminded not to be the the oppressor themselves? And I guess it goes to show the human heart. It's not just circumstances that makes us victims, that, that makes us, um, or or even makes us uh, oppressors. It's actually our human hearts. Given the opportunity, we will take advantage of it. Given the opportunity, we will do not the right thing, but the wrong thing. And here is God saying, you don't be the evil person. You remember that um, Batman movie, which mean the second one, the one with the Joker, And Harvey Dent, you know, has dinner with uh, Bruce Wayne. He doesn't know it's Bruce Wayne. He doesn't know uh, he's the Dark Knight, that he's Batman. And Bruce Wayne is trying to convince Harvey Dent to be this white knight, to be this hero. And Harvey Dent um, unknowingly injects this, this realistic quote into the conversation. He says, you either die the hero or you live long enough to become the villain yourself. You know, you either die doing the right thing or given the opportunity, you live long enough and suddenly that opportunity comes along, you become the person who does the evil thing, the bad thing, the unjust thing yourself, even though you started out as the hero. And that's the tragic story in that Batman movie. Sorry to swirl it for you, but it's like 10 years ago now. He becomes this bad guy, even though starting out as the good guy. And that's actually the picture of our hearts. You know, we are all Harvey Dent. We're all two-faced. That's the name of his criminal character. You know, we, we have this good side to us, but given the opportunity, we'll swip, swap over to the bad side, to the dark side, to this evil side that all of us have in our hearts. And God says, don't do that. <laughs> it, it's there. Don't give in to that temptation. Verse 10, For six years you shall sow your land. So here is talking about this sabbath principle six years you shall work you shall sow your land But the seventh year you shall give the land rest and what does that look like verse 11 the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow what does fallow mean i think rest meaning fallow means plowed and harrowed but left for a period without being sown in order to restore fertility and to avoid surplus production so don't don't work the land don't plant anything so that it says that the poor of you people may eat and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat so here is god asking you to be generous to the people who didn't work your land don't own your land but you know be generous to them anyway you know this kind of rest that results in generosity to other people it's not just you get to rest you get to take this holiday but other people also rest together in this abundance that you're able to, that God has given you through the land. So yeah, um, do likewise with your vineyard, with your olive orchards. Verse 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. And not only you, but all your ox, your donkey, your son, your servant woman, the alien, so that they too may be refreshed. So this principle runs across all layers, all all um, all status, all different layers of management, <laughs> not just you, not just you, the boss gets to rest, but everyone gets to rest on that one day so that they may be refreshed. Verse 13, pay attention to all that I've said to you. Make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. And here's that warning against idolatry. I think he repeats it later on, so we'll pick it up later on when he, they go into the foreign land. Not to pick up the gods of these foreign lands that God has chased away. So, verse 14, or this talks about the three important feasts of uh, the year. So, the first one is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is a reminder of the Passover. You know, they didn't have time to bake bread with yeast to let it rise, so they baked bread that was flat. (laughs) so this is a reminder of the passover it says the appointed time for in it you came out of egypt verse 15 and none shall appear before me empty-handed so they're also meant to give sacrifices as a reminder of that plague of the firstborn you remember god has redeemed us and redeemed our lives so we're meant to um, give this sacrifice uh, not so much to give back although there is An element of that but to show that actually we belong to him this sacrifice dies so that we might live so there's this substitute that happens in this offering that's brought before God and then there's a second uh, festival verse 16 the feast of harvest and the third one is the feast of in gathering so feast of bread at the beginning of the harvest and the end of the harvest also there are two different festivals so first when you offer the first fruits of your labor. You know, you you have, you have plant everything. The first thing that comes out, the best of that harvest you give to God. And the, at the end of the year, the last bits of the harvest is also offered up to God, That meaning all this is, is given to us by God. And therefore, we want to give the best to him to acknowledge in thanksgiving and to acknowledge his blessing upon us in giving us everything, not least our lives, not least uh, that which sustains us, you know, our bread, our income every day. So, three times in a year, verse 17, you shall all your males appear before the Lord God. So, it's a time of worship. It's a time to come before God and to honor Him for all that He's done for us. Practically, this meant going down to Jerusalem where the temple was, and which was why this particular time particular times these three times in a year it was super crowded everyone would go down as this pilgrimage but the first one would always be the biggest one this feast of unleavened bread also known as the passover verse 18 you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning verse 19 the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the lord your god you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And this might be indicative of, you know, a mother's milk is meant to give life to the goat. It's not meant to be a, 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 a means of his death. You know, you're cooking him in the thing that's supposed to give him life, but you kill them instead. So, yeah, uh, very, very symbolic. All um, coming together in terms of worship. In terms of life, you know, God gives us life. And therefore, we are meant to live this distinctive life that honors God in everything that we have in this life, not least thanksgiving, offering, worship to God. Verse 20, I sent my angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And interesting, you know, from verse 20 onwards, it's talking to these people who are now camped for one year at this mountain base but it's talking beyond that you know after uh, many years of wandering in the desert you're eventually going to go to this land and all these rules look forward to the time when they enter the land and prepare them to enter this land so that they'll obey god in this land that god is giving them beforehand So, so long time to prepare long time to kind of like let it sink in that this is the way in which we are meant to live especially when we've been blessed by God with this promised land. So first thing, God protects them through this angel, goes before them and leads them to this place that he has prepared. In verse 21, God says, Pay attention to him. Obey his voice. Do not rebel. He will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. Verse 22, But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, adversary to your adversaries. He will protect you, and anyone who attacks you, God will deal with them. He will be an enemy to your enemies. Verse 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you to, and this is the promised land, it's going to have lots of enemies there. Hence that enemy to the enemies, God protecting you and God fighting this fight for you. He's going to bring you to a place where there are going to be lots of people going to fight against you, and he names them all these ites, you know, Amorites, Hittites, Parisiites, and Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, and God blots them out, like wipes them out. God clears the the area for you. He says, He warns them, verse twenty four, you shall not bow down to their gods. It's interesting, isn't it? God says, you know, I am your God, I'm going to wipe them out, but you're going to be tempted to worship the gods who have been defeated by your God. It sounds so silly, but it will happen. You will just be uh, drawn to it, you know, You know. You look you, simply because it's an alternative, simply because it looks uh, attractive, simply because there are so many other different kinds of gods, so many different kinds of peoples, and maybe they've been blessed in a way that is different from the way that you've been blessed. And yet, you know, God has already shown that He's really wiped them out. You know, he's stronger than them. He's better than them. He's blessed you and not them. And yet you're tempted to worship something else. It's, again, not just what's there that's drawing you to it, but what's inside here that all, always goes, oh, I don't want to worship this God. I don't want to follow this God. Even though he's been good to me, he's protecting me, he's speaking to me, I am drawn towards other idols, other gods. And he says, don't bow down to them. You know, you'll be tempted to, but don't do this, nor serve them. Nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. And here it's talking about their idols, you know, their places of worship. You know, don't, uh, don't follow them. Don't, don't leave them standing. You know, destroy them. Verse twenty-five: You shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. And then I will send terror before you and throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you. God will fight that fight for you as long as you stay with this God, you worship this God. Verse 28, and I will send hornets. What does hornets mean? Or the hornet. Um, maybe it's uh, symbolic again of that angel that God sends before them, you know, this hornet, this agent, of god that fights on their behalf he sends this hornet before them and he shall drive out the hivites canaanites hittites from before you and then he says i won't drive them all out at once why is that verse 29 i will not drive them all out from you in one year lest the land becomes desolate and wild beasts multiply against you so if he drives them out you know other things will come in, wild beasts. So he doesn't want to leave the land uninhabitable, but but he gives them time so that they will grow in the land, grow in numbers, grow in their families, grow in their population. And then little by little, verse 30, I will drive them out from before you until you've increased and possessed the land. And he gives them this huge land. He marks out the borders from Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates. And he says, I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Verse 32, you shall not make a covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare Or a trap to you. So God is warning them decades, decades before they reach the promised land that this is going to be a problem. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But as we know through history, they do. And it's because, it's not because God hasn't warned them. And it's not because, you know, they they don't know that it's going to happen. But precisely because God anticipates this, God has warned them and they've rebelled against God's word. You know, they've rebelled against God. So yeah, so there you go, Exodus chapter 23, which has a lot of foreshadowing. You know, what's life going to be like when you receive that blessing, you receive that fulfillment of that promise that God has given you? You need to continue worshiping God and continuing stay. stay. It, it will be actually more tempting for you to leave God when that blessing comes. You think of, you know, maybe you're looking uh, forward to something that you know, you're hoping that God will bless you with, maybe that job, maybe you want to move to that place, you want to be in that particular position in life, and you say, okay, when I get to that point, I'm going to be overflowing with thanksgiving, I'm going to be faithful to you, I'm going to serve you, it might even be a ministry position. But watch out, you know, the moment you get to that point and God indeed has blessed you, it is exactly during those moments that God says, be careful that you aren't drawn away from me that you lose that, that grip, that standing before me, and you're ensnared to worship other gods. You know, these are situations in which you are stronger than others. You know, Paul says, no, not Paul says, Moses. <laughs> um, Moses says, you know, don't uh, show partiality. You know, you, have, you are siding with the evildoers. You're siding with those who are more powerful. You're taking advantage of the poor. Don't do that. implies that you are rich you have friends who are maybe not the best kinds of friends but you're tempted to follow them says don't do that or the times when the sabbath when you own lands you have employees you know you have abundance You'll be tempted to hold it to yourself, not give it to God. You'll be tempted to overwork your workers. God says, you know, let them rest. Let the blessing that have come upon you overflow unto them. You rest, but they rest as well. And finally, this land that God is giving them, you know, this amazing land. You are slaves. It's almost like someone who's spent their whole lives, you know, building houses for other people, but living in shanty uh, accommodation. But suddenly God gives you this home or someone who's always longed for a family. You've only ever worked as a servant in a family, finally you have a family of your own and God gives you this. And then you leave. you forget God. You start mistreating your family. You start, you know, boasting about this great wealth or this position that God has given you uh, or even this ministry that God has given you and you forget that this is precisely the situation where God says, you know, don't follow after other gods. Be careful of your own heart. You know, destroy all the idols, destroy all these things that will lead you away from me, especially when I bless you with the thing that your heart desires. And you forget that God has warned you against this. And you actually fall into the very trap that God has warned you that would be there, you know, not, not to fall into it. So it's kind of ironic. But again, it shows God's goodness, God's provision, and God's foresight, and giving these promises, but also these warnings together with these promises to stay faithful to Him, to worship Him, and to pay attention and to obey His word. It's for our good, and it shows His goodness. Yeah. Exodus chapter 23. That was that was super, super long. Uh, okay. Next passage. John chapter 2. Aha. Wedding at Cana. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him after this he went down to Capernaum with his mothers and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days so Jesus does this miracle of changing water into wine here in this city called Cana in Galilee in the region where he grew up and he turns up at this wedding um If you go to weddings here in the UK, this is like a classic text. And oftentimes the pastor or the priest will say, oh, did you know that Jesus went to a wedding as well? Just like we are here in this wedding. And it shows that Jesus was the kind of person you would invite to a wedding. Uh, Or Jesus, you know, knew the family here and Jesus was a good neighbor. He wasn't the kind of person who was, you know, didn't want to turn up. You know, Jesus was the kind of person who was just friendly, you know, who was just around and he would turn up if you invited him to, like, your wedding. And here, here he is, but there's a crisis. They've run out of wine, verse 3. And Jesus' mother somehow knows to ask Jesus to deal with the situation. He goes to him and says to him, verse 3, they have no wine. And Jesus answers her in a way that no good Chinese son would ever say to his mom and call woman, <laughs> Asawa, <laughs> ah, so, uh, uh, you call your mom woman, or you go, get one tight slap across your face. But Jesus here addresses his mother as woman. What have you to do with me? So my, yeah. Uh, what what do you have to do with me? And what does this situation, or what do you have to do with me? And he says, my hour has not yet come. You know, he's talking while looking ahead to the cross and again and again jesus does this in the gospel of john he talks about the cross as his hour and this hour will be the hour of his sacrifice of his death that final hour if you like when he will accomplish everything that he came to do to purchase souls you know through the death his death on the cross you know through his condemnation on the cross that hour that glory that. He, but anyway jesus says you know that's still that's still how many chapters away that that's not now and so he says, you know, it's maybe not right for me to do this. You know, it's not right for me to show my glory, maybe. Maybe it's this is too advanced. You know, there is still a lot to happen. But, you know, his mother reacts in a way that displays not offense. She didn't go, oh, okay, sorry. She didn't, she didn't go, ah, you know, how dare you say this to me. No, she says to the servants, verse 5, do whatever he tells you. So here is almost Mary, his mother, Recognizing Jesus' authority and Jesus' believes you know, there's a problem. He said, Jesus, can you deal with this? But also submitting to that authority. He says, do whatever he says and here already at the beginning of the gospel there is that distance you know jesus is lord even over over mary you know he, she's he is her son and don't make any mistake of that you know he does provide for her on the cross you know provides john for her you know this is your mother says to uh, mary this is your son so as he leaves and as he dies he, he still loves his mother but here you know jesus still recognizes that you know um he will one day have to die for her sins. You know, Jesus will be her Lord. And so he says, woman, you know, um, what do you have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But his mother says, you know, do whatever he says. And so Jesus actually does help out in this crisis. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars. Um, And I'm not sure whether you have these. Uh, I used to have them... uh, Back in my grandma's place, my grandpa's place, you know, we get we, we get so used to the idea of turning on the tap water and then, you know, that's water. But, you know, having big, big containers, that you don't have plastic those days, you know, made out of stone. You know, that was pretty normal to store water. But it says here these particular stone jars were for Jewish rites of purification. And Jesus says, you see it's those six stone jars, he says, fill them up, fill them up. And so they take the water from some source, maybe a well somewhere, and they fill up. And this is maybe, maybe symbolic of how there needs to be this fulfillment of this Jewish law expectation of purification, you know, all the requirements of the old testament of having being needing to be pure before we come before God. These would have been water that's from the jar that's used to cleanse yourself before you're going to worship God, that kind of thing. And I think Muslims today do the kind of thing as well before they go and uh, have their Friday prayers. They need to just wash your hands and your feet just to symbolically cleanse yourself before you come before a holy God. And Jesus says, fill those jars. Uh, and maybe again, a uh, symbolism of needing to fulfill that requirements of the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, does that, and it's huge, 20 or 30 gallons each. And then Jesus says, take some of the water um and draw some out verse eight and take it to the master of the feast. Now it could mean that Jesus is saying, take some of the water from the jars and give it to the master of the feast. Or he could mean just now that you filled up the now that you filled up the jars, now from whatever water source, like from the well, take from that and then go and give to the master of the feast. Yeah, either way, you know, it could mean that now the water is taken from this source of purification or having filled up and having fulfilled all the expectations and the requirements of the Old Testament for purification, now, only now, can you give to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast was kind of like the MC of the event, you know, the person who introduces the bride and the groom, ladies and gentlemen, you know, this is Mr. and Mrs. Galilee or whatever. And he's the guy who kind of like, you know, takes care of the events of the evening, the guy with the microphone, if you like. So the master of the feast, verse 9, he tasted the water that had now become wine, and it says that he didn't know where it came from, even though the servants <laughs> knew what what where it came from. And, you know, these servants, they just went around, you know, taking water and then pouring it into the glass. I don't know whether when they were walking, it changed the wine, or that they poured it, it changed the wine, or to them it still looked like water, I still don't know, but it had turned into wine, And the master of the feast tasted it and immediately called the bridegroom. Immediately called the bridegroom and says, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when they've drunk a bit more, they've gotten drunk. And then they can't taste the difference anymore. And then he takes out all the cheapo stuff. But he says, you have kept the good wine until now. And that's amazing. You know, Jesus gives them the good stuff. He not only saves them from the embarrassment, it would have been really, really embarrassing if they ran out of wine. Uh, actually, Chinese weddings have the same kind of problem. Oftentimes, you know, uh, uh, you want to have that free flow. You know, they show that generosity, show that, that face, the safe face to be able to offer. Usually it's that beer or something like that, but this is wine, even more expensive. And Jesus did this as a sign of grace. Why did he do this? Of, of all situations, you know, it's just someone's wedding just to save that person's face. But Jesus did this, shows his graciousness, and maybe shows that there is that symbolism as well. Uh, when you're talking about that wedding and having to have that bridegroom and that bride there. And Jesus may be thinking forward to his own wedding you know the marriage supper of the lamb when he will come and you receive his people or his city as his bride and how jesus will provide the wine and the blessing for that occasion maybe maybe Uh, but it says verse 11 this is the first of his signs jesus did at cana in galilee and manifested he displayed his glory you remember chapter one again we've seen his glory it's meant to show us something some kind of insight into Jesus' identity, into his glory, his godness, if you like. And his disciples, it says there, believed in him. Let's pick up from verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, this is the Passover. We actually read about this just in Exodus, about that first feast of unleavened bread. Well, the first day uh, was the Passover. You know, that first important meal that remembers the time when God's Spirit passed over all the houses, hence Passover. Otherwise, if you didn't have that meal, you didn't have that sacrificial lamb, then therefore, you know, God's Spirit will come in and he will take your firstborn. So it's the passing over of God's judgment, of that death. And therefore, they remember it thousands of years later when they were saved from Egypt. They remember this Passover. And so whenever you have this Passover as well, everyone's supposed to celebrate it in Jerusalem. They're meant to worship God. And so there was something like 200,000 people in the city at this point of time. And so all of them will have to come to the temple and worship God with a sacrifice. Now that presented a kind of problem because you have to bring your goat, your sheep, or whatever to sacrifice before God. And if you travel from very, very far to Jerusalem, because people lived all across the land, you have to come here to one location, there is one day in the year, you know, you had to bring your lamb all the way. So it was more convenient if you could just travel there and like buy buy your sacrifice and that's what's happening here in the temple verse 14 he found those selling all these animals for sacrifice oxen sheep pigeons and there were also money changers sitting there so means you have to exchange currency and this could be currency in order to buy the sacrifice or currency in order to give the offering to the temple which required a certain kind of currency and temple temple coin either way this was done kind of like a convenience you know, to help uh, the worshipers in order to worship God, you think of, you know, um, book stalls in churches. You know, you want to encourage your church, and so you have a book stall there. I mean, they can always buy it from Amazon, they can always buy it online, but, you know, why not have the book stall in your church? That way they can be edified. It's more convenient. You know, I just read, uh, the pastor just quoted a book and straight away buy it straight away. And so that kind of convenience is what this selling of oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers was there. It was meant to be a convenience for the worshippers, kind of like a 7-Eleven. But Jesus did not see this as a good thing. Verse 15, And making a whip of cords, he drove out all those out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples, remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, why is Jesus taking offense at this, you know, this shop, you know, that had all kinds of animals and money changers, but it was meant to help worshipers worship God? Well, the place where they set up shop was actually the court, the outermost court, of the temple, which was called the Court of the Gentiles. And this would have been a place whereby people who weren't Jewish, who weren't allowed to worship God, could at least come in and see how it was that the Israelites were worshiping God. But instead, this specific area that was meant to be for non-Christians, if you like, for outsiders, if you like, was turned into this bookshop, It was turned into this kind of car park turned into this place for the convenience of the insiders but God said have this space for the outsiders and therefore you know they turn as Jesus says this his father's house into a house of trade in the name of money and not just money in the name of convenience they made things harder for those who don't know God to come into proximity with God and therefore Jesus finds that very very offensive verse 18 so the jews said to him what sign do you show us for doing these things what right do you have you know you're acting like you call this your father's house you know you're uh, back in singapore and malaysia would say your grandfather's road your grandfather's shop uh, means as if you you act as if you own this place and jesus is acting as if he owns this temple and verse 19 jesus answers them destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up the jews then said It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Here Jesus is equating the temple with his body. You see, the temple is the house of God. The temple is the place where you worship God. The temple is the place where you go and meet with God. You know, today we say God is everywhere. God is in heaven. But no, 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 no. For the Israelites, God was in this temple (laughs) physically. Uh, During the Exodus, he traveled with them. You know, earlier on, we read that that passage where it said, I'll send my angel before you. There was this manifestation of God through this angel this pillar of cloud this pillar of fire by night god was with them and eventually this led to this tent this house of god that god would say build this and i will dwell among you in other words it's almost like saying you know in this land in this location god is my neighbor you know, god actually lives with me and the symbolism of that was this temple again this structure this building but jesus is saying no more you need to destroy this because no more will it be that God will dwell in this physical building although actually he never could he's in heaven this is just a symbol of how he is with his people but he could never fit into this building it's always a symbol but Jesus is saying the reality of that symbol is now here it's in Jesus and therefore what Jesus is foretelling is the time when this physical structure of his body will be destroyed he himself will be killed and then will be raised up Again. And so Jesus is now taking the place of this temple as the place in which you can worship God, you can meet with God, and God comes to meet with you. He, he comes to be with you and to have this relationship with you. Meaning for us, you know, there is no temple structure now for Christians. Um, your church building, as temple like as it might look like, you know, sometimes we call the main hall the sanctuary is not the temple of god you will not find god in this four walls and you know in this in, under this roof because jesus is the true temple and the true meeting place between us and god we come to him and therefore we come to god through him aha uh-huh. so let's move on verse 23 now when he was in jerusalem at the passover feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs That he was doing oh wow you know saw the signs you know he did all kinds of miracles he did all kinds of signs he said okay all right I believe in you but verse 24 Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in a man Jesus is here He knows what is in a man, shows that he's able to see what's inside of us, our motivations, our hearts, our drives. But also it says that he's kind of suspicious about the kind of things that draw us to believe in him. Yes, they see the signs and they believe in him. But Jesus goes, you know what, I wonder if you really do believe in me, you really do trust in me. And here is Jesus, you know, kind of suspicious of the kind of faith that is brought about by signs by impressiveness even though they are done by jesus and it's not anything to do with the signs he has everything to do what's inside of us we are drawn to things that sometimes say less about god but more about us that we are fickle we are drawn to this today we can be drawn to something else another day we are drawn to the temple today but tomorrow we can destroy this temple we can destroy christ and we can call for him to be crucified and so jesus is very suspicious, um, almost very cynical about the kind of motivations we have to coming before Him, either because we are desperate, we are impressed with Him, or simply because He's the flavor of the day. Meaning, when Jesus does draw us to Himself, there's something else other than just our motivations. There's something that Jesus gives to us that gives us that right kind of motivation. That new kind of desire, that new kind of faith and trust in Him, that is not inside of us but comes outside of us. It comes from Him. In other words, He gives us His Spirit, His Holy Spirit, that causes us to be able to see Him as He truly is, to trust Him as we ought to trust Him, as you know, as, as the Son of God. You know, and, and yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. So that's John chapter two. How are we doing for time? 619. Okay. All right. Almost an hour. And Job chapter 41. Where is my cursor? There you go. Okay. Job chapter 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many please you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who can come near to him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling Pot and burning rushes his breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth in his neck abides strength and terror dances before him the folds of his flesh stick together firmly cast on him and immovable his heart is hard as a stone hard as the lower millstone when he raises himself up the mighty are afraid at the crashing there beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not, likely, not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride what is god describing here and why does he describe this amazing huge terrifying beast verse one can you draw the leviathan so this leviathan what does the footnote say a large sea animal exact identity unknown (laughs) so huge sea animal you know it has all these his back is covered with shields you know very very thick back It's all sealed you know no one can tame him can you but god says can you put a rope around his neck can you pierce his jaw with a hook and can go fishing for this huge sea monster and will he make many pleas to you will he speak to you in soft words like like almost like a pet <laughs> this huge monstrous beast that everyone's, everyone is so terrified of is almost like your pet you know pet leviathan Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? You know, like, like, you know, pet dog. You know, will you play with him as with a bird or will you put him on the leash for your girls? Some people uh, think that this Leviathan is a description of uh, either a mythical beast and then you take this beast and you give it to your kid girls to be like their pet or some people think it's a crocodile. You know, yesterday they thought it was a hippopotamus. And so this is another like beast, like a uh, crocodile. But either way, you know, you don't give a crocodile to your kids to, to play with. You know. <laughs> Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the church merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? And then verse 8, I like verse 8 because it says, it's almost a challenge. Lay your hands on him. You know, like hug, hug, hug this crocodile or this, or this leviathan. It says, "Remember the battle. You will not do it again." <laughs> you, actually, if you think of what was that Australian guy, in, uh, um, uh, Australian Steve, Steve something, uh, Steve Irwin. Yeah, Australian Steve Irwin. He said, the crocodile," and then he go, he, he hugs him. So, like, oh, it's so awesome. Maybe, maybe, maybe God wasn't wasn't describing Steve Irwin, you know, with with all these huge animals and then hugging them and wrestling with them. But even then, you know, he, I think he had to be really careful. He says, "You you wouldn't do that." <laughs> you know, you would remember the battle. And he says, "Behold, the hope of a man is false. He's laid low even at the sight of him. He's terrified of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up." Who then is he who can stand before me? I think this is the point that God is trying to make to Job. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And here God's saying, you know, this beast is like this pet to me. You can't tame him. You know, I own all things, all beasts of the earth. And therefore, I do not answer to you, you answer to me. And yeah, I think, I think that's kind of the point that God is trying to make um, with creation, with the things that terrify us in creation, that they don't terrify God. You know, God to him, it's just another creature that he has made. And, you know, sometimes there are equivalents cool for us. Again, we, I mentioned like a dog or a pet, you know, we tame that. You know, yes, we consider we have affection for that, and then uh, we uh, we do that to a certain extent. Well, God uh, does that with the Godzilla uh, or or the or the, the crocodile that that terrifies us. You know, such as God's position and status and power over His creation that He has tamed that, and if we recognize that, therefore, I think we ought to recognize our position before Him. I guess, um, that, you know, God is able to tame something that we cannot tame. And if, I wonder if God is talking, therefore, about not just beasts and nature and, you know, wild animals, but about um, injustices and really tricky situations which require a kind of wisdom that we cannot comprehend, that God actually is in control of that as well, the way that he's able to tame this beast, that you know it cannot be that god does not deal with that situation even though for us we will be terrified of that and we will be wouldn't be able to know what to do about that if we tried you know we just struggle and we never do it again but you know to recognize that god is god even in that difficult tricky situation that requires so much wisdom and to bow before that to trust him in that and to you know to acknowledge that you to know, say god you know I, I cannot deal with this, you know, the situation, it terrifies me, but I, I, I trust you, you know, you, you've put me in this situation, and um, you, you are in control, you're always so, you know, you're always good, and you always achieve your purposes, even though I can't see it, even though I can't do it, you can, and you are. Okay, so that's what I'm going to say about Job chapter 41. Again, also, I'm kind of nervous about commenting on passages where God has direct speech because, you know, if I'm wrong, you know, it's it's kind of risky, right? You know, God, when they say, hey, you know, Kelvin, what do you say? You know, that was wrong. They say, oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Job chapter 41. And we have our last passage for today. Yay. And then it's the weekend. What do you have for the weekend? What are you going to have for dinner? What are you going to do this weekend to chillax? I'm going to have, uh, I defrosted some mince, but actually I have leftover rice and kimchi. So I'm going to maybe fry my rice with kimchi. And then if my mince is defrosted enough, have some protein as well. (laughs) Because so sad, today I had my kimchi sandwich because I didn't have any meat. So kimchi sandwich um, and with the leftover like crumbs from the fried chicken I had from the last few days, just the just the crumbs, just the bits of hardened uh, dough. yeah, so that was my feeling. Uh, okay, and then tomorrow I have to prepare for that talk for Sunday. I haven't written it out yet. Um, I really do want to do uh, kind of like a walkthrough as to why I'm noticing as I look at the passage. Uh, if I have energy and I have time, maybe I'll do it tonight, if not tomorrow tomorrow catch that uh i've squeezed it in between the readings for the bible reading show and we'll look at 1 peter 4 together see what we can learn and glean from the passage uh added challenge of trying to tie it with mother's day which is this coming sunday so yeah that to look forward to this weekend okay on to 2nd corinthians chapter 11 and paul says I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. I'm going to sound really foolish to you. I'm going to say something that sounds so nonsensical, at least to my ears, but I'm going to say it anyway. Do bear with me, verse 2, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. So he's, he's so jealous for them. You know, someone's tearing them away from him, but he says it's a divine jealousy because it's the kind of jealousy that God has for his people. When someone draws you away from God, god will feel that kind of anger and that kind of jealousy that says no you belong to me and paul feels that heartbeat that same kind of passion and jealousy that god has for his church he says since i betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to christ you know betrothed you is almost taking the position of a father Betrothing, you know, his daughter to a son. He says, "You know, I want to present you to your future husband, pure, without blemish." Yeah, and and but verse three, I am afraid, but I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Talking about Eve, how she was led away by the serpent, how she was tricked into misjudging God and doubting God's goodness and so it kind of polluted her love for God and so in the same way the serpent might pollute our love for Christ and uh, no longer having the sincere and pure devotion to Christ verse 4 for if someone comes someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And here it pause, bringing this situation whereby someone else is coming and proclaiming a different kind of Jesus. It's still Jesus, but it's their kind of Jesus that has nothing to do with the gospel. Or another kind of spirit from the one you received. And this could be talking about the spirit of humility of submission, but here is a spirit of boastfulness, a spirit that that that, that, that is full for yourself. Or you accept a different gospel, a different message from the one you accepted. And he says, you put up with it readily enough, meaning you lap it up. You actually love having this alternative Jesus, alternative spirit, alternative message of salvation, way of going to God and heaven and relationship with him than the one that Paul proclaimed to them. Verse 5, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. He calls them super, I think ironically, says these guys are so impressive. They're not just apostles. They're super apostles. They're not just pastors. They're super pastors. They're not just evangelicals. They're super evangelicals, meaning they are much more impressive than us. They're constantly reminding us how, how better they are compared to us. Yeah, they're hot stuff. Verse 6, even if I am unskilled in speaking. And maybe that was one of the criticisms, you know. uh, Compared to Paul, I can preach better than Paul. I can preach better than your pastor, that kind of thing. I'm better, better, better. It says, I'm not so in knowledge, Paul says. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. There's this kind of clarity and plainness to Paul's speech that he does indeed know the gospel and he preaches to them the straightforward, clear gospel that he's received from God. Verse 7, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the region of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. And so what's Paul's boast that he won't be silent of? That when he came to them, he did it for free. And maybe these new super apostles, these new super pastors are coming and doing these impressive things, giving them this special kind of love that they didn't have before, but for a payment in exchange for money, in exchange for support. And Paul says his boast is that when he came to them, there was no charge. Other churches supported him. And if you remember what he said about these other churches in Macedonia, poorer churches supported him so that he might offer the gospel free of charge to you guys who seem to have plenty of material blessings that you want to pay in order to get the love of these super apostles. But Paul says, no, I I, I resisted that. You know, in in humbling himself so that he could preach God's gospel to them, verse 7, free of charge, F-O-C. And there's a kind of integrity that comes with this, of being able to offer God's gospel and able to exercise ministry in such a way that you resist the temptation of asking for money, asking for support. And such that when this kind of situation happens, and it will, you know, when they turn their backs on you and they go, aha, you know, uh, maybe he wasn't very good, you know, maybe that person wasn't very sincere, maybe maybe we can choose, look for something better now. You can go back and say, hey, you know, this was not something I did for you out of as, as a kind of payment, as a way to, to find an income. But the way in which I receive God's gospel is for free, you know, this is all purely by grace. So the means by which I preach this gospel to you, you know, that too was at no cost to you, it was at cost to me, it was at cost to other Christians who supported me, but not to you. So that when you receive this message, you receive it as the way it should be received free of charge you didn't pay for this gospel you didn't pay god to save you god gave it to you even though you didn't deserve this at his expense at his death you received this life because he was cursed you received this grace this blessing this salvation and paul is consistent in modeling the gospel in his ministry doing it for free doing it sacrificially and doing it consistently and humbly for others so that they might receive it for free by grace, by faith alone. Uh, Verse 12, and what I'm doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. (laughs) So That's why there's no comparison. Those guys are trying to say, we are like Paul. We're trying to do the same things on the same terms. No, 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 no. Money and support and motivation for money, and that desire for that kind of income separates you and me. Verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles for Christ. Notice there's still the word apostle, but false. Workmen but deceitful, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to trick you, they use lies. They're apostles of Christ, but they disguise themselves. They make themselves look like the real thing. Verse 14, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Verse 16, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. So he's speaking, he's speaking out of turn here. This is not the way that he would normally speak, but here he is boasting, boasting of the fact that he offered the gospel free of charge. Now, now it's worth noticing this because on the one hand, yes, (laughs) it should be a good thing, you know, to not make money your priority. But even boasting in the fact that you're offering it free of charge, you know, don't use this as a license therefore to go, ah, ha, 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 therefore I am better than the other guys because those guys, you're paying them and doing this. So even Paul says, you know, even this, you know, he he's kind of like almost crossing the line. So, so please, please don't use this as another means of selfish boasting either. So, so, yeah, so, but even if you do accept me as a fool, he says, verse 16, so that I may boast A little, and he continues to boast even more in a much more foolish way. Verse 17. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourself. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. And it's, it's, it's really, really strange. Sometimes people are more willing to trust the bad guy, the person who is using manipulative ways, than the pastor, than the minister who has been consistently humble and loving and faithful all this while. Well. It's just human nature if you think of it sometimes uh, they use exp- uh, excuses like oh that person is therefore you know flawed but at least I know that I can connect with that person or that person oh I know um, uh, they, they are they're abusing us but you know we, we should give them another chance that kind of thing but the pastor who actually is consistent and humble and faithful you go oh what a loser no, I, I actually you know, maybe maybe that person uh, doesn't know what it means to live in the real world. Maybe this person, um, you know, uh, yeah. Well, for whatever reason, you know, for a twisted way, we somehow will gravitate towards the person who is less than faithful, less than honest, and less than sacrificial than Paul. So, yep, uh, verse, uh, verse 19, again, verse 21, but whatever else, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offsprings of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am the better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? So Paul, you know, Talks about those guys, they're boasting over there of the, about their CV on LinkedIn, you know, which college they went to, how many books they've written. Let me boast of Well, let, let me boast as well. Let me show you my CV of my sufferings, of all the times I was humiliated and treated like garbage, all the times I almost lost my life, all the times, you know, people mistreated me, all the times I failed in the eyes of the world, and all the times I was thrown into prison, all the times that I was, you know, susceptible to, you know, robbers, he mentions it, danger, 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 danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. Everyone, you know, my own people, my enemies, all of them were trying to attack me, trying to kill me. Danger, whether in the place of safety in the city, danger out in outside the city, every and any situation I'm facing danger. There's no safe place for me, for this apostle Paul, because everywhere God sends him, God exposes him to threat, to danger, to Death to pain to suffering to loss to humiliation—that is Paul's CV. Imagine you interview someone for your church, and you expect them to say, "Okay, how many sermons have you preached? You know, can you recite the Westminster Catechism, or can you whatever kind of thing that you think will impress you into going? This person is a good pastor. This person should get a job. And the person tells you about all the things that you know." I don't know, <laughs> you, all the things that you'll be ashamed to tell people if your kids got into this kind of trouble, all the things that they, they failed in, uh, the failing grades in school, all the times in which they were called names, all the times, all the churches they got kicked out of, all the people who hated them, all the times that you know, they started this particular ministry and it didn't work out, all the failures and all the things that you should be embarrassed of, Paul boasts about it. And, and he says, you know, that's, that's what he's going to tell you as, as his CV, as his qualification for doing this ministry that God has given him. Verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. My weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. And, you know, I know some people, they read this and go, ha-ha, I got away, kind of like Mission Impossible. I know Tom Cruise is lowered down by the, on the rope. Shh. Paul's like, Top Mission Impossible. No, 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 Paul, when he says, when I was lowered down, said, how shameful it was. Know, such that I had I needed to to run away from this trouble. It's not that he stood and fought, but no, they had to lower him down in a window in a basket and he just escaped <laughs> with his life, escaped with escaped this person who was trying to kill him. And therefore he's boasting about all the times that he was weak, that he was small in the eyes of the world, that he almost died. He says that's the authenticating mark of his ministry. And you know you need to contrast this with all the people who are still going on and on and on and on about how many live streams they've done or how many books they've written how many how many passages of the Bible they've read, as if that will impress you into thinking that they're the real thing you No, know, it's 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 the things that you know um maybe they don't want you know <laughs> don't want don't want you to see because it's just so embarrassing it's ah huh, really uh. You sound such a like such a loser when you're trying to expound that passage. You know, don't you? Didn't you go to Oak Hill College? Didn't you go to that particular church? Didn't that particular teacher teach you? Don't you read the books? And you know, uh, Paul is going. Nope. I'm, no, you know, no. Paul actually, did study under all these colleges and didn't have this learning. He says that's not going to be the way in which I'm going to advance myself. If you want to know anything about me? I'm going to tell you about all the things that you think. You know, this is. A loser. Maybe the very things that you were pointing out, to Paul. Oh, that Paul, that kind of person, who would go through that? And he says, "Let me tell you, even more things that will make me, make you humiliated of me." And it makes you think, actually, you know, what are the motivations for someone who wants to be in such a position of ministry? Why would someone, anyone, want to be in the position of Paul to exercise this kind of influence? In order to tell the gospel if it means that they themselves will be exposed to more and more hardship and weakness in their lives and the answer i think it's it's there uh in verse 11 and why because do i not love you god knows i do you know paul exhibits the same kind of passion and love and jealousy and concern for this church as god does he starts by saying you know this divine jealousy he has for them And he talks about this love that he has for them. You know, Paul is almost mirroring the way in which God loves us. Because God loves us with this kind of love, where God Himself exposes his weakness. God himself takes upon Himself our failings and our you know, and and, you know, until we realize that we won't actually realize just how much God loves us. We we expect that the way in which God loves us is He wows us oh, look at this, here's this present or this blessing, do you love me now? And maybe that's the way in which these super apostles are coming to entice them, hey, look at this gift or look at this amazing thing that you haven't learned before, isn't it cool, I can teach you more of that. But the way in which God loves us, he shows us, look at my son who died on the cross for you, look at his shame, look at his nakedness, look at his stripes, and see there what it means for me to love you because see there your sin see there your position before me i have loved you when you were like that but i have given you all the righteousness all the love all the status and all the blessing that my son deserved i put it on you and i clothe you with that and that is how i see you now how do you see me do you see me as this loser god do you see me as this god you know who you know is there but you know maybe is so far away and this other God and these other serpent, these other apostles are so close by and so convenient to have access to? Or will you trust in this God who speaks to you by his word and calls you to hold on to it, to wait for him, to trust in him until he comes one day in the person of his son and brings that final glory, that final salvation through him and him alone? Will you wait for him? Will you trust in him? Will you look to him now in your weakness, so that then he will reveal you in his glory. Okay, good good place to end. Heavenly Father, thank you for this picture and remind us and reminders of your weakness that you've taken upon yourself our sin. You've taken upon yourself our rebellion and you've put upon us Christ's righteousness and love and his Approval. Forgive us, Lord, when we are full of ourselves. We've forgotten just what it means to receive this grace that we did not earn, that we could not achieve for ourselves. But you've given us freely and generously and graciously this salvation that comes at your cost, that comes through your love. Thank you. Sorry. And help us to continue trusting in you and you alone. Keep our hearts you know, bound to you. And thank you for that jealousy and for that love that you show to us. And you show to us through your servants as well who mirror that kind of humility and boast in that kind of weakness so that we too might boast in that weakness. We too might glory in that treasure that you've given us in Christ, in Christ alone. We thank you and praise you in his name. Amen. Amen. (laughs)